Thank you, choir. We have a little problem, and the problem is I can't find Johann Hinderley. <laughs> I was looking all around, and I was, I was searching inside and outside, and I could not find Johann Hinderley. And so I was wandering around, and I, I, as I was looking, I, I saw someone else to preach for us. And I actually, truthfully, I think he might be better than Johann Hinderley. So come on in. Johann could have done as well, but he is far younger than I, and so his competency needs a little time to improve. Like California wine, perhaps, improves with age. Something I'm sure people say about you once in a while, too. That's right, that's right. Well, so, Dr. Luther, I'm so glad that you're here. Indeed. And we just won't tell Johann that I'm glad that you're here instead of him. Okay. <laughs> Your secret is safe with me. Okay, okay. Grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The word for the day gives us hope. For we are here shown three people about whom much has been said in the Bible. And each of them is a failure. So for those of you who have brought your failures with you this morning, you are in good company. For Isaiah... Paul and Peter, all witness to the truth of their own insufficiency before God. And yet, the promise is that in spite of those glaring defects, which some of you here in California hide much more successfully, in spite of those glaring defects, God chose them and gave them a calling. Now, if God can use someone as inadequate as Isaiah or Paul or Peter, there is hope for you. There is hope for me. There is hope for each of us and for all those whom God will send to your congregation. For listen to their testimony. Each of them sees his life in a specific way. Isaiah a man of unclean lips. The Apostle Paul, a man with an unclean past. And Peter, whom some churches regard as their heroic leader, a man with an unclean soul. And what does God do for each? God cleanses the lips. God cleanses the past. God cleanses the soul. These leaders of our faith all needed to get their act cleaned up. So if you are dirty, which I know you are, have no fear. God has the right kind of soap with which to wash you and bathe you and to cleanse you from all that defiles you. That is his promise. Paul writes about this in a more descriptive way in the letter to the church at Corinth, where he describes for us the basis upon which our faith depends. It depends upon evidence. Evidence. In the creed, we confess three of the statements that Paul makes. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried and Christ was raised. These three 
know because you confess them in the Apostles' Creed. But the fourth is equally critical to Paul, and it is critical to Isaiah and to Peter and to you. Christ appeared. And that you may not misunderstand the significance, he says this four or five times. Christ appeared first to these at the garden, to Peter, to 500, to James, and last of all, he says, as if to one untimely born, he appears also to me. God gives evidence. Evidence of his living presence because he knows those whom he is calling also have evidence. And the evidence we have is failure, inadequacy, incompleteness. We have all these things that disqualify us for being a member of the kingdom of God. So God gives evidence to assure you that your calling is from him. If you have a Bible and would care to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you find out clearly how Paul defines this calling in another context to the people whom he cared for in Corinth. He says there, consider your calling, brethren. Consider your calling. Consider that upon which God is building the Corinthian church. You could even say, consider that upon which God is building the Reformation church in Westminster. He says these words. Not many of you were of high estate. <laughs> Perhaps none. But the point is, we don't have to get into comparisons. Russell has already proved that he knows how to compare my preaching with Johann's, but that is of no account to me. Consider, he says, this truth that your calling does not depend upon your beginnings. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. You think of your congregation here and how God has taken something small and insignificant and seemingly cast off on a side street in this great metropolis. But out of those small beginnings, what does God do? It is about God, not about us. So he chooses what the world counts weak. Are you weak? Yes, of course you're weak. Uh, just ask your spouse, <laughs> or your neighbor, or your children, or your parents, or whoever it is. They all know the truth about you, no matter how well you would like to have it hidden. God chooses what is weak to shame the strong. God chooses what, what God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose those who are no account to shame those who are big shots in their own eyes. This is how God wants to work, for the power of God is hidden from the eyes of this world. It's hidden. And yet it comes to us at the very place where it came to Isaiah and to Paul and to Peter. It comes to us at the point where each of us needs to know that we are cleansed 
and we are cleansed by the promise of Christ and him crucified. That is why Paul says, this is all I want to preach, is Christ and him crucified. And this is what we receive today at the Lord's table, something very weak and insignificant, of no account, and yet it is the living presence of our living God in whose body and blood we are cleansed from all that defiles us. And so we come with eager hearts and hungry lips to receive him who is our life. And that is our Lord's Supper. And yet to the world of no account of nothing. So we trust this promise, and this is the word upon which our lives depend. This is where our calling is grounded, not in our history, not in our strength, not in our wisdom, but in God. And that is where God also met me. And what I want you to hear this day is God's promise to you to continue to meet you and to encourage you in your calling 24 hours a day and seven days a week with his wonderful presence to give you evidence of his certainty that he is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? So let us look at some verses in the Bible that help us to understand our 24-7 calling. Uh, this may seem a little trite to some of you who are wise in this world's eyes, but you can go out in the hall and listen there if you like. I understand that the sound may actually be a bit improved. If we look in the Old Testament, we find in three different cases verses that begin with chapter 24 and verse 7. And each of these texts help us to remember our calling. The first comes to us from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 7. If you would like to turn there, you can. I will read to you, those of you who do not have a Bible. Chapter 24, verse 7 of Jeremiah says these words, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and they shall return to me with a whole heart. What is God saying here to a people in the days of Jeremiah who were under affliction, who suffered from King Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, the war in the Middle East for them was as real as it may be for some of you, and they suffered in a way far greater. But God says this to these people in the midst of their terrible conflict. I will give them a heart. Now, why do we need a heart? We need a heart because our old heart is deceptive. It is out of the heart, Jesus warns us, that all our evil thoughts come. So we need a heart. And for some of you who perhaps have the right insurance and the right doctor could go and get a transplant, but this is for ordinary people like us who can't afford such a surgery. Our God comes in and gives us a heart. For what purpose? So you might live longer? 
so that you might see that your investments actually finally recover their strength that they lost for you? No. God is not interested in such things that you trouble yourselves with. God is interested that you might know him. That you might know him. A heart that you might know him. And that you could come into his presence without fear. Without fear. And this is where we need to begin. Now, each of these 24-7 verses has to do with your eyes. The first one, Jeremiah 24-7, talks about where we look. And here is where we look. God says something to us. Let's have a look. Some of you go to a doctor once in a while, and your doctor requires you to open your mouth, uh, and the doctor wants to have a look. What the doctor sees, who knows, but since time he's begun, every doctor that I have known has always asked people to open their mouths, to look in. And this is the first step in our 24-7 understanding. God, the great physician, wants to look in and see the condition of your heart, that you might know your need 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to let God have a look and to let God do for your heart what you cannot do for yourself. When I lived in the days of the Reformation and I was confused about my relationship to God, my friend Bugenhagen came up to me one day and shook me. And he said, Luther, believe the gospel. <laughs> he was shaking my heart. He was God's servant, looking in and showing me that something inside me needed to be reformed, transformed. And he shook me into that awakening. Can we let God have a look? That's our first step in the 24-7 process. The second leads us to the Psalms. Psalm 24, verse 7. Uh, you can see that I have designed this to help some of you whose history in your background makes your memory slightly deficient. Yes, you know who you are. You have spoken with an accent many years, or if you haven't, you know your grandparents did when they came over on those boats with their fish and other things that they couldn't live without. So we have 24-7, the first time is Jeremiah, the second time is Psalm 24, verse 7. And this, some of you may know, it is a simple text that says this, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now, where do we look? Let me read it again. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now, where do we look? Shall I read it one more time? <laughs> Maybe the... Frankly, hard to hear me. Where do we look? 
Yeah, let's point at least if you can't say it. There we go, that's good. That's good. I'm not quite sure if we're connecting here this morning. So we look up. Now it says, and be lifted up. Ye heads, be lifted up. For it is by nature that I look down or even look back or look around. Think of those people whom we have already heard of in today's reading. Isaiah, Paul, and Peter. They did not look up. They had no capacity to look up. All they could see was what was wrong with them. And so here the text says, and be lifted up. Look up. Someone needs to help you look up. In my case, it was often my wife, Katie. I would become so besieged with the problems of the Reformation that my soul would become colored with my disappointments. And Katie would have to help me. One day, she came to my study all dressed in black. I looked at her and I said, Katie, who has died? And she looked at me and she said, Oh, Dr. Martin, God has died. I said, Katie, how can you say that God has died? And then she said, Well, to judge from your appearance and behavior, you would think he had. <laughs> So we need others to help us look up and to lift up our heads. And this is the reason you need the body of Christ, the church, where two or three are gathered in my name, Christ says. There I am in your presence. We need the hands of others to lift up our heads. He sent the disciples out two by two so they could encourage one another. And this is where the promise of God is found. We need people to lift up our heads. Perhaps you could take a moment just now and say a prayer of thanks for some person in your life who helps you to look up, to look up. Just pause for a moment and give God a gracious prayer of thanks for that person who helps you look up. The third 24-7 promise, and our last one, in case some of you are keeping score, is found in Genesis chapter 24, verse 7. And this is a promise for you that helps you understand the last step of evidence. The first one is God looks in. The second is we need help to look up. And the third one has to do with looking in a different direction. Listen to the text. Abraham is speaking to his servant, whom he is sending to find a wife for his son Isaac. And this is Abraham's testimony. The Lord who took me from my father's house to your offspring, he said this, to your offspring I will give this land, that he, my God, will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. God says, I will send an angel before you. Now, did this just apply to Abraham and to his time? Was he chosen for that reason? No. Consider your calling. God has chosen you as well. And God also says, I will send an angel before you. 
An angel is a messenger, someone whom God has appointed to help you and to encourage you and to bless you on your way. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, God says, I will send an angel before you. Uh, you remember, I'm sure, how I was in the diet of worms and I was accused of being a heretic and I was regarded as one whom anyone could kill without any consequence. And on my way home from that event, I was captured in the middle of the night without my knowing and drawn to the Wartburg Castle. It was my good helper, Duke Frederick. He had determined that to protect me, he had to get between me and my enemies and bring me to a place of safety. He was God's angel sent for me. That was a very specific and quite significant way in my life. But daily God promises angels, people whom God will use to help you so that your life can be shaped by hope. And this means you can look ahead. You can look ahead and see what God is going to do for you. And when you see those persons whom God sends to you, you can share this good news with others so that you can build up each other in this faith, so that you can see that what we are calling together this day as the church is the continuing work of God who also set apart Isaiah and Paul and Peter, and he has set you apart as well, although it appears to you as if you are of no account, for the evidence against you that the devil holds in his hand is that you have failed and you can never achieve what God has called you to do. But deny him that power. You are God's, and God has called you. Consider your calling. You are chosen, and your purpose is to bring to pass that which God has appointed you for. Trust his promise. It shall be true. You may be walking in the darkness for a time, but his word is true. As faithful as he was to all his servants and to me and to others throughout history, he will prove himself for you as well. This is his truth. This is your calling. You stand in the line of all these great saints. Do not count yourself unworthy. You are God's. And God has appointed you for wonderful things which the world will never see. So you need to walk by faith. Walk by faith. And he will bring it to pass. Let us pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have chosen us for this great and glorious calling of which this world knows nothing. And so as we listen to you and to your voice and follow your word, we can live by what you declare and what you desire. Help us daily to walk in your way and to trust your promise and to look up and to let others lift up our heads and to look ahead and to see what you are even preparing for us this day as we worship you. And thank you, Lord, for looking in and giving us a new heart. For Jesus' sake, amen.